out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the musician, um, singer-songwriter, plus keyboard player, guitarist, and also has done lots of production work. It is the one and only Chris Salaghi who I spoke to very recently to find out about his life. He was in various mem- uh, bands during the 70s and also during the late 70s, early 80s, was in a band called 2020 and did several albums, then went into production work, this is true, and worked on the Redskins album, Neither Mos- Moscow Nor Washington, and various other bits and pieces, and then got into, I suppose, digital media during the O years or the teen years. Um, and has done lots of other stuff. Anyway, we're going to talk about all that during this interview. So after several minutes of casual but interesting chat, we got down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Chris, it is over to you. Um, well, the Beatles, really. I mean, you know, obviously. But but I, I had been following the charts, actually, before that. I started listening to AM radio. I'm, uh, you know, I was born in 1954, so I'm 10 years older than you. Mm-hmm. Um, I started listening to radio, you know, seriously, probably in 1962 or so. And then I noticed that the newspaper had a top 10. So I would look at that every week and sort of keep track of all that sort of stuff. So, uh, so, you know, like, uh, like, like you know, the, the four seasons, I grew, you know, I was in New Jersey at the time. So the four seasons were really popular and, um, and uh, Dionne Warwick, don't make me over. Anyone who had a heart, all that stuff. Amazing. That was really, really big. And then, and then, of course, the Beatles, you know, that was, uh, you know, when I was like nine, they, they were at Ed Sullivan show. Yes. My and, God, then, you... and then following the charts, I noticed that in April of that year, they had all five of the top five records that, that year. I don't think anyone's ever done that, you know, before or since. They, really? had, they, had, they had the top five. Uh, yeah, the Billboard charts. They had the top five of all of that week. Yes. Oh my God, that's amazing. Though I, don't, I just suddenly saw a headline, I think, in the paper that Taylor Swift's got the top 10 of, I don't know what chart it is, but I, I didn't really read much more about it. But I think, yes, it's sort of. Yeah, I, I have no idea about the charts now. No. Yeah, you know, I, I, I will tune in on the Grammys occasionally, and I have no idea who anyone is, you know, until know. until they start doing, you know, bluegrass or, uh, or, you know, traditional blues or stuff like that. Then, okay, I know that person. Yeah, I've heard that record. You know. Yes, this is true. You, we all get to that age where we just think, mm. but um, yeah, so you were at that perfect time of yeah. um, being 10 with the first, you know, I suppose the beginning of the Beatles, seeing the whole 60s through your teen period. That must have, did that feel yeah. kind of a bit, bonkers at the time or in retrospect which is two different things really but yes because obviously you know the very sort of black and white period of the Beatles obviously it was in color if you were there but then you know this psychedelic period in 67 the summer of love you had the San Francisco gathering of the tribes yeah I mean were you were you kind of aware of that kind of change well that's that's what I'm saying I started to be aware before the Beatles actually and so it, I didn't see it as so much bonkers. It's just really exciting. You know, you had all this incredible, you know, because you had Motown and you had the British invasion and you had, you know, all this stuff going on at the same time. Then you had all the older folks, too. I mean, you had you still had little Richard, you know, you also, you know, there were always people in my life who 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 thought, you know, like the Beatles ruined everything. It's all little Richard. It's all Eddie Cochran and stuff like that, you know. So then I was familiar with all that. And my parents, of course, 
were classical musicians. Right. So, so I, I always had that as well, you know. Yes. So they, they gave um, you quite a kind of a grounding in music. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, so, you know, I've always had a lot of music around me and I've always been very, very aware of it too. Like, you know, I remember when I started getting into 1920s music, you know, from uh, Betty Boop cartoons and, uh, and getting a, you know, I got a Bing Crosby record when I was like maybe 12 or something. And, uh, you know, of, you know, from the 1930s and, you know, so I, I was always into, I had always had a very broad, you know, sort of spectrum of stuff that I was interested in. Yes. What about the Busby Berkeley period and the Siegfried sure. Siegfried Follies? Did you sort of get into those kind of? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I was well into to Crosby and uh, and Al Jolson even, who was the like the biggest star of the uh, you know the, the beginning of the century. You know, I mean, he was huge. Yeah. So so I was into all you know old movies. I mean, you know, always had all this great music in it too. So yes. you know, I sort of saw it as one big you know bowl of uh of you know wonderful stuff you know did you also at that stage did you get into sort of sort of the 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 culture or the art of that 60s period you know sort of thinking about the films that started coming out or the the Andy Warhol you know whole experience and sort of yeah, um, yeah, yeah yes yeah, pop yeah. art yeah. was was that all starting to filter into your consciousness as well it certainly was there, there was a magazine called i magazine which I believe came out in 67 or so. And it had sort of this psychedelic sort of bend to it. And it, it probably was around for maybe a year or so, but I, but I got all those. I started getting all the magazines. I started with like getting 16 magazine and Tiger Beat and all that stuff, all the teeny bopper magazines. So I could follow, you know, all the bands that were out, you know, from Paul Revere and the Raiders and Herman's Hermits and the, the animals and the Yardbirds. I loved the Yardbirds. Yes. And, um, yeah, so so I was following all that stuff at the time, and yeah, so 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 the the as as the culture changed, I mean the the the, the visual part of it changed too. I mean with movies and all that sort of stuff. I mean blow up and and you know the the, the Beatle films and you know Yellow Submarine and you know the Peter Max and all that stuff and okay. and, and Warhol too. Like when I when I got to New York in the early seventies, I had some connections. I went to some Warhol parties and, and events and stuff like that too. When in the early seventies when I was oh, there. That's so- cool isn't it that would just be that would be such that was really a great time too because i actually saw the new york dolls um in uh, in person which that's really cool yeah yeah that was uh, yeah that's that's about the coolest thing i've ever done i think was yes well that that's good did you have any older brothers or sisters that influenced your musical no no, it was was just me my uncle you know my, my uncle had sort of grown up grown up in the 50s and he had seen Fats Domino and Little Richard and all that sort of stuff. So I got I, I got my first batch of records from him. You know, he would give me Ray Charles and he gave me you know, all this stuff. So that was really, really good. I was I was close to my uncle. Yes, absolutely. Was, yeah, absolutely. And he was like, you know, my brother's kid uncle, you know, so. And so you then know, growing up in New York. Yeah. Yeah. And then 67, you get your first guitar. So was this kind of were you thinking this was going to be your life music? <laughs> Not really, actually. I, I just thought that, that music was just something that everybody should do. And um, but I, but I started playing in bands really early on. I think what you know, within a month or so of getting a guitar, I was I was you know playing at a party, you know, with uh, with some other guys. Yes. And, and- um, yeah. Yeah. No, I I I I never thought really. I mean, at at that early age, I never thought that that you know I would be you know a musician so much. I mean, or, or a professional musician. 
Yeah. Well, no, I, I mean, I was I was all over the place. I was making movies. I was doing all sorts of stuff. I I, I knew I would do something, you know, in the arts, but I, I wasn't, uh, you know, it, my parents were musicians. So I guess I always thought that, you know, they were always saying, oh, well, you know, it's great. Music is great, but always have something to fall back on, you know, always, you know. And and I guess I guess I, I sort of took that into heart, I, I, I guess. Um, God, so, that's such good advice. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was good advice. I didn't give my kids that advice, but uh, but but yes, it is. It is yeah, no, you know, so, so I was always interested in a lot of different things. Um, you know, uh, making making movies in junior high. Uh, you know, I wanted to go. I wanted to go to school for for movies. Actually, I wanted to learn. That know, was it. Yes. When when you got to 1970 and you were 16, obviously this kind of you know we had the summer of love. And then two years later, three years later, you know, there was the death of, you know, first, you know, Brian Jones. And then there was, you know, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, Altamont, Charles Manson. The 60s kind of ended on a bit of a downer, didn't it? You know, after all that kind of optimism, excitement, you know, the party really did feel kind of grubby. Did you? Did, soured, did, it, yeah. did it feel a bit, you know, for you at that stage? And not realize, you know, like, oh, it's another decade. And we all feel a little bit like, oh, what's this going to be? God knows what this decade's going to be remembered. Yeah, as. yeah. I, 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 I sort of got turned off by the the whole flower power thing. I guess you know what I, I, I arrived in in Southern California in 1968, and you know it was still happening. And I thought you know that was pretty cool, you know, at the time. But but after living living in it, you know, for for a while, I, I, I really hated uh, the hippies. I mean, that was that's one of the great things about punk was that why why <laughs> why, why I was so happy when punk came along because. I was just so tired of uh, of tie dye and uh, patchouli oil and all that stuff, you know, and all that uh, you know folk dancing and all that that really boring awful stuff. That that's why I like the glam and uh, you know you know dressing up and and you know playing loud music that way and you know. Yes. So when you you moved to uh, Santa Barbara, didn't you, in 1968, and then started your was it your first band? 1973, you started playing in kids bands. No, I mean, I was always playing in neighborhood bands and and playing. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, from from 1967 on, I was always in a band, probably. I mean, even today, you know, so but but um, but, you know, I, I played all sorts of things. I, I would you know, I've always been kind of an accompanist, too. So I accompanied people in musical comedy. I I and, and in fact, the first time I was on TV, it was in a uh, sort of a Latin jazz group. Actually, I had a band in um, like ninth or tenth grade called Baroque Nova. And and played like one note samba and all that sort of stuff. And that oh, was that so cool. Was first, yeah, that was the first time I was on TV and local TV in Santa Barbara. Yes, I know. Well, what's quite interesting, and I'll have to sort of, um, yes, I did embrace it the in the eighties and some the nineties, a bit of a hippie world and a hippie culture and new age stuff. And I remember going to Glastonbury Festival and then hanging out with various Glastonbury folk. You know, one called Charlie Barley, who was the dope dealer in Glastonbury, and he turned me on to the Fire Sign Theatre Company. Um, you know, because I was always kind of wanting to sort of know, I was always curious. There was like Lenny Bruce, Lord Butley, you know, Richard Pryor. I loved all that stuff. And he said, look, David, you need to also check out these guys. These are really cool people. And you you were sort of in a in a theatre troupe with some of the members of the Fire Sign. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, uh, one of the Fire Sign Theatre moved to Santa Barbara. And we were very much into the records at the time. You know, Don't Crush That Dwarf, Hand Me the Pliers, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, and my theater teacher happened to run into uh, David Osman, 
um, around town in Santa Barbara and got him to come to our high school and give a lecture on radio drama, radio theater. And, uh, and so uh, I met him there and I just sort of attached myself to him and, uh, and became very close friends with him. And, you know, he would, he would, uh, when he, when they would go off on tour, he would let me and my girlfriend uh, take care of his house for him. And, and, uh, and, and then I started doing some shows with them as, as the, the sound effects man, which was great. And, uh, and, and started doing music with, uh, with Phil Austin, who was uh, another guy in the Firesign Theater. God, that's and so I did cool. My first sessions with him when I, when I came to to uh, Los Angeles, uh, I did my first sessions with uh, with Phil Austin. Actually, he invites me to a session, and the piano player is John Simon. John Simon, who produced the band Janis Joplin. Oh, yes. <laughs> it was like, uh, yeah. So, so he, he so. So a lot of you had a lot of doors yeah. opening for you at this stage of your career. I had so many opportunities. It's amazing how many opportunities I had. This, <laughs> I think I've got a John Simon book actually. You probably uh, do. Yeah, he wrote a book a couple of years ago. I just read it. Yeah. Yes, he was on a another podcast called I don't know Rock and Roll. I don't know. The, yeah, there's another podcast. I'm sure. And he, yeah. you know, he was such an interesting guy. I thought, oh yeah, John Simon. I'll go and put that in my Amazon basket. I yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I had to drive him to the airport. We had a lovely chat after the session too. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Perfect. But of course, I never stayed in touch with him or anything. This is my my own. Only contact with John Simon. Yes, um, but yeah. that's good. I, so, I, I just don't stay in touch with people. So, Julian, you mentioned sort of that wonderful world of glam, which, you know, came along and, and sort of probably saved you from sort of a world of, I don't know, it was a tricky time really going from one decade to another. And I had an older brother who was seven years older than me in the 70s. So he was really into prog rock. So he introduced me to the wonderful world that was sweet, yeah. not sweet. Um, yes, and Genesis and Wishbone Ash, Barkley, James Harps, the solo work of Rick Wakeman. I kind of wished he'd introduced me to something better than that. And I was obsessed with all yeah. these records. Did you <laughs> what, did you miss all that kind of wonderful world of No, it it, it sort of seemed like the the, the you know when I got to be more of a you know later teen, it, se- it seemed like the uh, the serious musicians either went into uh, into um, prog rock or um, you know what was the um, a fusion jazz fusion, and I was really never particularly into that. I like I like the like the first um, the first King Crimson album I thought was really great. The Court of the Kings and Crim uh, King and Twenty uh, First Century Schizoid Man, love that stuff. I was going to I was going to say, did you and have you seen the film, the King Crimson film? Yes, I didn't know there was one. Well, after this interview, just go put King Crimson film trailer, and you'll hear all the members um, swearing about Robert Fripp and Robert Fripp swearing <laughs> about the other members. I think yeah, they had something yeah. like eight, but it's one of those ones. And also, get a chance if you get um, if you're really curious to listen to the the director who tried to put the, put this film together and oh. the the process. It, you know, I wasn't a big fan, but I love music films, and this one yeah, yeah, just yeah. is going to be right up my street where. They clearly, yeah, have a lot of personal issues, but it's a it's a classic. It looks like a classic. I haven't yeah, seen. Yeah, I, um, I, I saw I saw them on tour. Um, what two years ago? Right before the um the pandemic, actually. Right. Yes. With, did they have two three, three drummers? They had three drummers. Yeah, three. Yeah, and it was great. It was great. I mean, they all played. It was very well well arranged. You know, there wasn't a whole lot of thrashing about. It was. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Oh, fantastic. This is good. Yeah, you'll love it. And they had too. a singer, the guy, the guy who sang, 
really sounded like the 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 original singer too you know because they did all that stuff they did 21st century schizoid man and oh what's that other one red the great the great number yeah yeah yes dear old robert for yeah. we yeah. love we love his little sunday lunch with toya moments don't we but yes um, yes 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 and and he uh and i and i like the album he did with peter gabriel too he did he he produced the second peter gabriel album which was really good too Yes, I know. He's got a nice line. I can't quite remember it now, about oh. doing a guitar rift with for David Bowie and talking about, you know, when you've heard. Oh, my... Heroes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Now, did you see the, the David Bowie movie? The, the Moon yes, Age Moon Age Daydream. Wow. That was. Wow. I was blown away. Yeah. yeah. And also, if you get another chance, I did. I listened to a very long interview with Morgan, the, the film director, and I can't remember his surname. And it was really interesting what he was trying to do with that film because I was like I loved it and I didn't I thought I wonder why he didn't do this and why he didn't do that but then he kind of explains the processes and what he did yeah, why he yeah. did everything he did so I saw, um, it's funny. It, it, it wasn't like a documentary you know I was kind of expecting a documentary but it's not a documentary really it's 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 a portrait of Bowie you know yes. and it's it goes a lot deeper really than you know this happened and then that happened and that led to this it wasn't it wasn't really you know like a traditional documentary it was yes I was to, visually just so, you know, crazy. I know. And, I'll, I'll have to, I'll send you the link to this interview with the director because actually that explains all the things you wonder why and why not. Um, and it's like, okay, because the DVD comes out next month and it's only, I've seen it's like £10. I thought, oh, well, I'll have to buy it and watch it again. Oh, and now oh. I've heard the director talking about it. It's like, okay, that's interesting. I wonder yeah. why. Why and it stops the, the when it does. Was, was incredible too. I mean, I, I saw it in the, um, what's that large format called? Is it anyway, IMAX. So IMAX, exactly. It's gigantic. And it's got like seven or 12 channels of sound. So stuff was coming from all over the place. So it was, it was wonderful. I know. Really Hello, great. Space Boy was just awesome. It was just. Um, oh, the bottom, the bottom was great. Yeah. It was great. So look, going back to. Yes. Getting when, back. Going back to 77, you become the, is it the sort of stage manager or assistant sound man for the Roxy Theatre? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That was great because I saw everybody, you know, I mean, because I was working pretty much, you know, six nights a week. Uh, so everybody from, you know, Bette Midler to Lou Reed to, uh, you know, country guys to Bill Evans, the, uh, you know, jazz piano player. Um, yeah, it, 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 that was amazing. My God, Bill and, Evans. And it, and it, and Bill Evans, uh, you know, pl played with Miles Davis in the in the in kind the of blue. It, no, the look up Bill Bill Evans, very important important piano player. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. No, I was sort of aware of some of it. I thought he played on Kind of Blue. Yes. So, yes. Yes. He, yes. Um, yes. A stunning. A stunning person. Yeah. So and then, then and all of his solo work was was amazing too in the 60s, 70s. And what was amazing too was that when he played the Roxy, he was he was sponsored by Baldwin Pianos. And they brought in a nine-foot grand, probably the biggest piano I've ever seen, and it, and it just sounded glorious. I, in fact, I recorded it that night. It was it was wonderful. Stunning. Recording, yeah. So yes. then, then after that, the next year, because your years kind of you do pack each a lot in, you get together with is it Gary Valentine from Blondie, who at this stage, my my second single, well, my third single, the second single was Rod Stewart's Sailing. I have to confess, the third single was Debbie um, Blondie with Denise, and uh, had a fantastic B side of Kung Fu Fighting and Contact in Red Square. So you you get together with Gary. How does this happen? I I had met his his girlfriend Lisa Persky in New York when I was there in 73 74 she was a friend of mine 
and I'd stayed in, in touch with her. And she had moved to Los Angeles. And uh, she said her 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 uh, boyfriend, who had been playing in Blondie, had quit the band and was coming to Los Angeles. And, you know, would I care to, you know, work with him on his record? Because he did a single um, be before the no started, actually. So I helped him with that. And he did a single with the Mumps. Are you familiar with that? Band? Oh, my God. I've done an interview with dear old. With Kristen, uh, Kristen Hoffman. Yes, that's the one. Yeah. yeah, I went to high school with him. He's yeah, a couple of years older than me. Yeah. So did you meet uh, Lance Loud? Uh, Lance? I, I was in a band with their, with his brothers. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew Lance pretty well. Yeah. And um, so, um, so, so anyway, so um, um, Gary comes to uh, Los Angeles and I get him a job at the Roxy. He's a bouncer at the Roxy and, um, and he wants to put a band together. So there's, there's a drummer there that works at the Roxy. So uh, we all got together and started playing. I, I was the bass player actually for that band. Amazing. And, and then we got a real bass player, Richard Dandria, and uh, I decided this wasn't really for me. So I moved along. Uh, but it was actually Gary who um, recommended me to 2020 when they were looking for another another player. Yes. So, so then that about. Yeah. So then 2020. My God, you, you, you know, each year seems to be sort of has a particular chapter, doesn't it, in your life? This is quite amazing. Yeah. Well, like I said, there were a lot of opportunities out there. Yes. You know, so what was it like I mean, you know, being... when, you're, when you're young and, and silly, you know? The, you yeah. Know, we often so. say yes a lot more when we're younger than we do know. That sort of changes, that's, doesn't it? That's a good point. Yes, yes, we do. We regret some <laughs> yeah, of the yes. We think about we, it we, too much now. You know, we, we we consider. Well, I don't know if I want to do that because you know, because I've had these experiences before, and you know, you know, I have to. I know. Yes, I know how it finishes. So I'll probably say no on this occasion. But 2020, what's this like being part of a band that been together for a couple of years beforehand? They had been together. Yeah, yeah, for a year or six months or so with with Ron, because it started with um, with um, 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 uh, Mike Gallo, and then he found Steve Allen, and I guess Steve Allen had done some recording, uh, and then when he got together with Mike, they called it twenty twenty, and then and then Ron Flint, who um, Steve had played with, you know, for a long time, came to Los Angeles, and then they they started playing gigs. And then maybe six months later, they decided they wanted a fourth member. And uh, so uh, I auditioned for them and gave them my little demo tape. And uh, that was that. I met with I met with Mike. Mike and I hit it off very, very well because he's a big record guy. Yes. And uh, and and, you know, the latest thing from England, I was always, you know, into the you know, what what's what's the latest thing in England? You know, because their, their pop charts just seem to be so great. And and it seemed like all the interesting new bands were coming out of out of England. And uh, so um, so Mike, you know, uh, felt the same way and 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 would would get all the records. He had worked at a record store or something. So he had everything. So he introduced me to a lot of music that I hadn't really heard before, like ma uh, magazine which was one of my favorite bands from the 70s and 80s if you remember yes. that uh, well absolutely john john yeah. john McKinnon. and, he, and he, had, he had all the pretender singles before they were released in the us too you know so a lot of that kind of stuff so yeah so so um, mike and i got off very very well so he was good on his post punk wasn't he so gang of four magazine public image limited all those kind of bands did he have uh, all those how, well howard devoto was was in buzzcocks Yes, that's right. 
and uh, and then uh, yeah, then he formed Magazine. That but that was probably '78 or so. I mean, yeah, yeah I, I don't know if they were considered punk so much, but well, post punk. You know, I, I wasn't really looking at the labels so much. It was more, you know, just the music. Yeah. And then during that period, during the first album, Mike leaves, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. Mike was uh, well. He was sort of kicked out, you know. Which was that, in, was that was that tricky? That was terrible. I mean, in 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 retrospect, that was that was that was sort of a bad decision, you know, because it. Uh, it, it, yeah, I mean, you know, we, we got in the studio and, and started recording and it became sort of obvious that the drums were not really quite solid enough to make a record, you know, to, to make a, a pop record, at least. Um, and um, but it was really, really unfortunate because he was sort of like, I mean, to, to me, he was sort of like the glue that held the band together. I mean, in, in that he is his songs and, and his enthusiasm and his promotion of the band and, you know, all that stuff. If it wasn't for, for Mike. I mean, there wouldn't have been, you know, any interest really, you know? Yes. God, that is heartbreaking when something like that happens. Yeah. So, so that, that was, that was a mistake, I think, you know, yes. back, because then, then it, then it turned into just Ron and Steve pretty much, you know, and I, and that's fine too, but it wasn't really, you know, what I had signed up for because, you know, Mike and I were a little more, you know, I, I wanted to be more in XTC and, uh, and Ron and Steve, I guess they wanted to be more, you know, Tom Petty or something. I don't, I don't know exactly, but, but, but with Mike in there, Mike was a lot more sort of in my camp, I guess. So yes. it was a lot more interesting that way, you know. Did you manage to keep in touch with Mike all sort of, you know, sort of not heal things, but did you sort of manage to sort of, you know, sort of have a chat with him later. After. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've, we 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 spoke a lot, like right after, because I left the band maybe a year later, and I think after that, you know, we had a long conversation about the whole thing. And uh, yeah, I, I think he understood. And then, you know, at, at that time, he had another band that he was he was promoting, and you know, he had another batch of songs and stuff that he was doing. So yes. that was, that was well, it was also that there was the other band people like Elvis Costello and Joe Jackson as well, which 2020 has that Dave Edmonds <laughs> sort of feel, doesn't it? It's it's kind of in that more that that category at times. Kind of, kind of. Um, we 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 actually opened for Joe Jackson. We did a national tour with him, um, at least of the East Coast of the U.S. Yes. Um, well, I mean, I guess the, the, the thing is, is, is that Joe Jackson and, and Elvis Costello were doing songs, you know, I mean, songs in the more traditional sense. And um, and 2020 was sort of doing that, too, I guess. Those the 2020 were, were not quite lyrically as uh, as pithy as. Costello. Uh, <laughs> no, Elvis has a little way with words, hasn't he, really? So then when you when you left the band, was that a big thing for you or did you feel relieved after the two albums? Uh, it was it was just it, it became apparent to me that I needed to move along, that there really wasn't much future for me in the band. Um, and, you know, I had other things I wanted to do. I had, you know, because I had a lot of songs that uh, that I was not getting, in, you know, any play on, you know, because anything that, you know, had to sort of match up with what Ron and Steve were doing. And, you know, um, so then I thought, uh, you know, I'll start my own band. Yes. Um, and um and I and I did, but then I I got I got I got asked to produce records, and I started doing record production a lot more. I sort of you know put my stuff away. Yes, I and, could uh, see I can see your eighties bunch of records. 
<laughs> you really, you really, yes, the 80s was you embraced that sort of world. So, so for me, you know, it's kind of, this is for the UK, I suppose there's a kind of, this is slightly simplistic, but there's the punk few years, then that post-punk world of, like you mentioned, people like Magazine, and then also Gang of Four, Public yeah. Image Limited, those kind of bands. And then sort of 82, 83, there's this kind of wave of indie <clears> pop <throat> records that start to appear and bands like The Smiths and there's also from Australia, The Go-Betweens and The Triffids. And in New Zealand, there was The the uh, the Chills. So there was this kind of five-year period of kind of quite nice jingly jangly songs with poetic people like Morrissey on the vocal. Did you, in America, did did that sort of come into your consciousness at all? Definitely. I loved the Smith records and I, I, I saw their first tour. Um, they, they played actually a big place in Los Angeles, uh, the, the amphitheater, I believe. Um, I was sort of disappointed seeing them live. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like the records a lot, you know, and which is why I went out and saw them. Uh, yeah, I thought Morrissey just just I, I, I couldn't take. He was uh, he, just, he he at the time I was saying he reminded me of warm mayonnaise. You know, he just seemed to be just. Yeah. I, I, years later, I saw him tour as Morrissey with his, you know, his professional band. And that was great. I, you know, this is right. maybe seven or eight years ago. I saw them. And here in Los Angeles, he's very, very popular. He's got a big Latino crowd. They love him. Which I never I never understood. You know, I went to this place and there were a bunch of, you know, uh, you know, um, and 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 the, and the love from the crowd was amazing. I mean, you know, because when they played, when the Smiths played, you know, it was sort of like the latest thing from England. You know, it was kind of serious. You know, these these cool guys, you know, what are they doing when Morrissey played? You know, years later, when I saw him, it just seemed like this this joyful you know sort of thing there wasn't anything cool about it at all it was like you know uncle morrissey you know uncle was, morrissey looking a little and, bit and like... it was great i mean he, he had I, I liked his band too i mean it, they were you know all hired guns i guess but but you know it was it was really really a good band and i think at that stage he used to have a guy called boz bora that was the guitarist that seemed to be with him or alan white so um there was that I'm not sure. I think Alan White's still there and Boz Bora, who used to be, I think he was in a, one of those psycho Billy bands like the Polecat. So he came from a rock, a rockabilly background. So um, yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. It, was, it was a really, really great band. And and at, at the end, he took a shirt off. It was like shocking. You know, it was it was it was great. I, I remember yes. uh, being very entertained with the show. It was a good one. So being a producer, this is your the old thing during the 80s. What does a producer what does a how do you become a producer? What is a producer? Um, well, a producer can be a lot of different things. It's usually the, 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 the person who sort of coordinates the recording process. So, you know, gets the songs ready for um, to record mm -hmm. and uh, and, you know, hires the, the, the facility, the studio and the engineer and all that sort of stuff. And and coaches the band, you know, tries to get the best performances out of the band and tries to be the liaison between the record company and the manager and the band and, you know, playing, playing all that stuff. But it, it also kind of depends on, uh, you know, who the artist is and, and what sort of experience they've had and how much help they actually need. Because, uh, you know, I've, I've done some productions where I've hired the band too, you know, where it's just the singer and, you know, right. everything and, you know, arrange everything and, you know, do all that sort of stuff. But then, you know, like Dave Alvin, for instance, had made a whole bunch of records be before I started working with them. So, you know, he knew what he was doing. And, and so what I was doing there was basically leaving him um, 
you know, to, to, to focus on actually the music itself and, and his performance. And, and, you know, so I, I took care of like everything else, all the boring details, you know, the bass player needs strings. We need this, we, you know, just, you know, all, all the, the little details, uh, uh, you know, like booking the studio and, you know, scheduling and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So, so it, it, it depends. I mean, it, it's a great job. That was my favorite job probably. Right. One, one, one is really, one of the things that's really great about the job too, is that you, you, when the project is over, you know, you're, you're not in the band. I'm, you know, I was, I was always, you know, terrible about being in bands because I would wind up hating somebody in the band after a while. When you're producing somebody, you're only with them for a few weeks or a month or two months or whatever. So you, yes. you don't have a chance to hate anybody. You can, you, you know? can show your best side. Yeah, I know. It's always yeah, cool. and, it's, and it's great too, because, you know, you're, 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 you can be really, really objective too. Because, yes. you know, I didn't come up with this guy. I didn't, you know, I, I, did, I don't have any history with this guy, you know, and it's just so much, uh, you know, this is what this is the way it looks to me. This is the way it sounds to me. And this is what I think you should do. This is what I really liked it when you did this part here. Can you do that? Again? You know, you know, all that sort of stuff. So, just, so there's a lot of coaching in, involved. And, you know, like especially when when doing vocals and stuff like that. People management. Yes, go. yes. And, 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 you know, counseling and stuff with between band members and stuff, you know, the bass player was insulted by this guy. And, you know, you have to sort of smooth over things like that. Yeah, it's interesting. And then, and then you know, I, I've lost a lot of drummers, though. It's, it seems like I'm very bad with drummers. I expect maybe too much from drummers. Like, I don't know if you remember the Redskins. We went in the first day of recording. The we 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 were all set up in the studio. We we had we had been in rehearsal for a few days before, and um, we started running down the song. And I I tell the drummer, hey, you know, you need to settle on your part, you know, because the bass player has got to play with you. So settle in on your part, and uh, and we'll go. And then uh, the next time I turn around, he's packing up his gear. He's leaving. The 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 the, the drummer quit that first day of recording. Awkward. And and was gone, was, you know, quit the band the yeah. first day of recording. And uh, and and Christine gets on the phone with uh, with Paul Weller, who sends uh, his drummer down, uh, Steve White. And <laughs> later on that afternoon and and uh, and we when we finished the record and it was and he was great. Steve White was terrific. Yes. So just coming back to that, because I'm really curious, how do you yeah. get to work with the Redskins? I know they're on they're one of those kind of indie bands, but they're and they're very political, but they're also on London Records, I think. Right. They got signed to a big label. Yeah, They got signed to a yeah. big label, yeah. but they're still, you know, so you're in America. They're very English, British. Yes. So, yeah, how, really where, yeah. so where do you get to work with them? What? Did you come over? That, that was we. We. I had a record that I produced in in um, Los Angeles by a local band here called the Untouchables. Yes, which was sort of like a two tone kind of thing, and um, and they had a record called Free Yourself that went top twenty in England, and um, someone heard it there, and through that band they contacted um, uh, me and uh, and Pat Foley the, uh, the, the my partner who uh, produced that and it it was like real drums and stuff it had sort of like a like a more Stax bolt kind of uh, sound to it it had horns and stuff which the Redskins were doing yes. so they were they were recording real drums and real horns and stuff like that so you know that's that's sort of what what we had done on that record and um, and it worked out well we we did a single with them and then they hired us to do the album 
So did you come over to the UK and work with yeah, them? Yeah, yeah. So what studio did you go to? Uh, we worked at the Roundhouse in Camden Town. Right. Are you familiar? I, I, no. I don't think it's a studio anymore. I, I was there a couple of years ago. I don't think it's a studio. Yeah. But it was it was a great studio, a really, really good studio. I was amazed, you know, because uh, they, they had all these German microphones, you know, that were very rare in Los Angeles. You know, the U47, you know, I had one of them at the studio that I worked in. I go to the roundhouse and they've got six of them, you know, so it was wonderful. You know. Blimey. Yes, because I often describe the Redskins as the you know, Clash meets Motown because of that kind of the, the brass section with it as well. So um, it's Walk a big like sound. Walk like the Clash, dance like the Supremes. That sort of thing. I know we love we love those sound bites. But then, yeah, so is that the first time you meet the band is is when you walk in? Yes. And say, Hi, yeah. guys. So what's well, we, we, we met for rehearsals first. There's this big rehearsal complex in London. I don't, I don't remember what it was called. I just remember that Wham were there at the same time, so there were a bunch of girls out front. You nice. know, there were there were a the whole mess of uh, teeny boppers out front, and um, so we rehearsed there for a couple of days, running the song down, and you know had, had the horns come in, and you know I, I I think I changed maybe one note of what the horns were playing, you know, but um, but it, it was pretty well together. Yes, and then and, they and said, look, we love then- we love that. We'll do the album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other thing I was going to say, too, is that during that time in the 1980s, you also would do an extended dance mix. Oh, God, yeah. Which I love doing extended dance mixes. And and previously, what I had done was, you know, sort of cut up the original song. And I thought here, well, they're going to have us do an extended dance mix. So let's let's record a couple of other pieces, too, that I could incorporate into the extended dance mix. And that was fun. That was great. Yes, absolutely. They, they were certainly up for all that stuff, you know, and all, and all that stuff is on the on the album, on the at least the new album or the the reissue from last year where they there was like a three or four disc set. And what of, was the what was the first single that you worked with them? Was it um, Bring It Down? Bring this It Down. That is such a great. So how long did the session last for? Did you were you working there for sort of weeks? Or oh, months? yeah, yeah, probably not months. I mean, well, I mean, the, the single um, was was a few days. And uh, and I think we remixed it once. Uh, we went to another we went to Mayfair to, to remix it. Um, but uh, but yeah, so a few days on that. And then I worked. I, I was there for like two weeks, actually. And in, in that I worked with another band, too. I did it a single for another band too as well. Wow, who were they? Uh, this was a band called Chewy Raccoon. They they had been signed by Phonogram. They were a very, very pop group. They later turned into the Pearl Fishers. Were they a, uh, Scot- were they a Scottish, Scottish band? band. Oh, Scottish. I've, done, I've done an interview yeah, with yeah. members of the Pearl Fishers who I think were on a label called... Davy Davy Scott. Davy Scott was the, the singer, guitar player. Yes, and I think they were in lots of different little combos as well. So yeah, so just because I'm really curious, so what was Chris like to work with for that? You know, up up close and personal. He was very, very, you know, very serious. Uh, you know, he, he, they knew exactly what they wanted to do, and and in fact, they had a sequence for what records, what singles they were going to release, and, and all that sort of stuff. So it was very, very well planned out, and a great singer. He was really, really. A very intense and great singer. He and he could sing for hours. I was amazed 
at how long, because, because some of those vocals took like, you know, eight hours to do. I mean, right. pieces and composites and all that sort of stuff. And um, yeah, we really, really, really serious conscientious worker. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And can you remember doing the track Keep On Keeping On? Because that's probably one of the, uh, the um, classics. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. I remember doing the horns, especially on that. Yeah. I, I mean, I suppose I know I've, I've gone on about it, but I just think that album captures so much passion and, and vibe and uh, the fact yeah. that you recorded it, you know, it's quite yeah, well, I, I always thought, I mean, that's that's what the, another job of the record producer is. You're capturing emotion. You know, this this is a slice of emotion that you've got that you that you're you're, you're capturing forever, you know, and that's why it's I, it's always important, you know, yes. to get to get that those magical, you know, performances down. You know, that's whatever you have to do to get that, you know. That's right. Absolutely. No. So then, you you know, and obviously you do you do your business and then you just continue with your producing whoever comes along. Is it the case of projects that you just think, yeah, that's fine. I, I need the work. Or do you sort of cherry pick what which which ones that you're going to be doing next? It was um, I would work with with nearly anyone, it seemed like. <laughs> You know, because I like a lot, a lot of different kinds of music. So I was working with reggae bands. I did a polka band. I did, you know, so if there's anything interesting in it for me, I, I will work with them. You know, um, I did, did, you know, various dance records, um, you know, because it's all it's 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 wonderful stuff. I, yes. I did. I, I did uh, one record where it was all done live in the studio, too, which which was difficult because no one really knows how to do that anymore you know from sort of like a technical you know how do you have drums and accordion in the same room you know and and actually record them properly um so 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 that's that's what what i really enjoyed about it too is that you know you can be doing something completely different you know each time out were you interested or curious about you know, like, you know, sound engineers, you know, this sort of production of that moment, because I know there was talking to, I think it was Tony DeFries, who'd sort of managed David Bowie, he was talking about Mickey Most, and I remember, oh yeah, Mickey Most, he was the producer at that period in life, and then you think, oh, he must have just sort of disappeared, but he probably didn't, he probably just didn't keep getting worked, and then in the 80s, we had that Trevor Horn production sound, which was like, everybody wanted to have that you know, if you wanted a top 10 hit, you went for Trevor, that that production quality. And then sure, suddenly, sure. as the 80s progressed, you know, one thing that I noticed was that suddenly the ecstasy world came along and dance music started to be appear. And then, you know, everybody started developing that sound at the Happy Mondays and Stone Roses and Primal Scream. There was a real dance vibe going on, Chicago house music. Then we had the Seattle grunge scene. Everyone wanted Steve Albini to produce yes, yes, a record. Big did, sound. Yes, yes. Did, yeah. you, did you also yeah. realise that there's a kind of a real fashion to all this as well? Most definitely, because a lot of times I would um, like like, for instance, I did a metal band in uh, in Los Angeles and sort of the mid 80s. And I, I didn't listen to a lot of metal. So I would get records like I got a Van Halen record and I got a rat record and I would sort of a B them against what I was my mix. So right. to, to see, you know, what the balance of stuff was, I mean, what's expected here. And um but but there there were definitely you know it, it sounds dated because it, it comes from a particular time I mean you know like that Hugh Pagum drum sound you know that 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 Phil Collins gated snare yes. you know which, which you know for several several years in the eighties that was the sound and it was on everybody's it's on some of my records 
And, uh, you know, so you, you can tell sort of like when it was recorded, but, but then, then you, you know, then you've got drier drums, you know, later on, you know, and stuff like that, you know, so, you know, and, and digital reverb and things like that, that you can hear in, um, in, in records from, from different uh, eras of, 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 of sound, you know. It's interesting you mentioned about drummers because I've done surprisingly quite a few drummers, but there was two who became quite damaged through their experience. One who was in the um, Patty, Patty who was in the Courtney Courtney Love Band Hole, and you know she said the the producer engineer just kept her, making her do the same thing and same thing until he broke her and she just kind of left the band and yeah, you know the yeah. rest isn't nice. And then Lindy Morris in I think from the Go Betweens also had this this experience that her boyfriend was you know the singer. Uh, Robert Forster and the the producer was saying, look, we can have Lindy doing the drums and that will sound like this and it won't be very successful. Or we could do this, which will be much better. It's up to you what you want to do. You know, not only is the band at risk, but also your relationship with this person that you're you're sort of possibly married to. So th- there is a huge amount of pressure in the studio, isn't there? It, it, you know, yeah. the tension well, is well, extraordinary. Well, especially for drums, because that's the one instrument that has to be you know, you're making a pop record, you're making a rock and roll record. I mean, the drums have to be really solid. I mean, ideally, the drummer should be the best musician in the band, you know, yes. because that's 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 too. I mean, what you're getting with the, the performance of the basic tracks is pretty much the drummer, you know, playing straight through, you know, uh, you know, playing through all the changes of the of the song. And and that is just so incredibly important. If you don't have that, you don't have much of a record. So that's that's why, yes. you know, a lot of our favorite records from the 60s will have, you know, studio musicians playing drums, you know, because it was just so damn important. You know, it doesn't matter how well you sing or how well you guitar, your guitar playing is. If you don't have incredibly solid drums, you don't really have a record. And that's yes. kind of what the deal is, you know. Yes. And, I, yes. And, I really... and, but 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 I mean, and, and the problem is that so so many bands, though, the the you know, the, the, the fabric of the band is is the drummer. You know, so those parts and everything are 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 that guy or that girl who's playing the drums, you know. So so you, you have to sort of like how you make this work. For instance, the the untouchables, the, their drummer was not a real solid drummer. We went through and he did the drums in like three passes. So he would play kick and snare, you know, for one pass. <laughs> then he would he would add the toms in the next pass, and then we'd add cymbals and hi-hat the next pass. And we made it work. I mean, the the the, the drums on that record sound live, you know. Yes. But that's, but that's what I mean. So so whatever it takes to 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 make it work, you know. Yeah, isn't there's another film. I'm not sure if you'd be if you'll be able to find it, but there was a band called The Wedding Present from England Leeds. They were an indie uh, band. I, I I play with the with the bass player right now as we speak. Do you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Terry, it, Terry, Terry DeCastro. Right. Well, played with them in the what late nineties, early two thousands. Oh, excellent! Well, there's a there's a film they made about the uh, making of George Best, the the record from nineteen eighty seven, and there's this a real moment within the film, quite a big moment between the drummer and the producer. Um, yeah, the drummer and the producer, and the drummer who's a good friend of the band. He's been there. He's kind of like you know. 
there's a whole conflict between these two and the drummer leaves and the producer sort of, you know, has issues and the whole thing, it gets very uncomfortable watching it in a way. But um, yes, it's one of, it's worth watching if you, if you like that sort of thing, because yeah, you'll, you'll feel both. <laughs> uncomfortable thing, yes. <laughs> it's, it's, but then there's a funny bit in the film where there's just suddenly some words that sort of flash up some, some comment from the producer who I obviously from legal reasons wanted some something put in the film which is quite jarring you think, oh and what that's about some some legal technicality but it's interesting the thing about the drummer because it's like god the tension starts to mount you know it's, it's, it is it is so so um essential like like the, the the thing with Ringo and you know his first session with the Beatles they got another drummer <laughs> you know it was like <laughs> You know, we, you know, studio time is expensive. You know, we don't have a whole lot of time to mess around here. We'll, we'll get this pro to sit in and, you know, here, Ringo, here's a, here's a tambourine. And he must have been about that for years, apparently, you know, with yeah. him and George Martin, you know. Well, you must have been fascinated watching the, the Beatles eight hour special of um, Get Back Let Now. Yes, get back. Um, get I was going to say. Back. So, yes, did you, did you find the creative process of the band quite mind boggling? Uh, it, it it's it was interesting. I, I think what what I didn't know about it, you know, because you know, Let It Be came out, you know, in nineteen seventy or whatever that was. And what I didn't realize about it was this challenge. Okay, we have to do a record in three weeks, you know, with all new songs, and we have to do a performance at the end of the three weeks. I didn't realize that challenge. I didn't. I didn't realize that. You know, because Ringo was going to start a movie project, so we have to have it done by then. So, so here we've got three weeks to do this whole thing, and we're starting from scratch. We have nothing. Yes, and uh, and, and yeah, and and then you know, for the the first week or so, it seemed to be Paul, you know, trying to get everybody sort of going, and 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 he had all the enthusiasm. You know, he was trying to create the magic, and you know, no one cared. It was sort of like, yeah, we got to be here. You know, yeah. But then they bring Billy Preston in. And all of a sudden, everyone's on their best behavior. Everybody plays twice as well as they they had played the previous, you know, week. That was amazing. And so, and so that, that was interesting. I mean, seeing seeing that that part of it, I think, which I didn't realize so much, you know, um, be, before the movie. I know that was that was so nice. The way they were so like, my God, we got a real star here. You know, it's like. <laughs> a real kind of legend it's like oh that's interesting i love the fact they have that relationship and i love the fact that there was that moment where was it who johns who jones the um no glenn johns who was the producer, the, the producer and, yeah, 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 yeah. and he said yeah. and he's trying to say oh can we do that song about the long road you've got a song about the long road and you think god that's one of the classic songs of our time isn't it and that's that's hardly been sort of um yes recorded but they obviously go right let's do it let's just get that done there you go. Is it good enough? His his mix was the first one to come out. There, there, remember, if you remember, like for a year, there were you know there were bootlegs of uh, of the, the sessions that, and and it was all his mix. You know, so I remember somebody had like an eight track or a four track or something, a little cartridge that we used to listen to in his in his car, and that's what it was. It was the the Glenn Johns mix, which right. we know now. Yeah, yeah. I do. I do so think before before the Phil Spector came out. The whole business so yeah i love digger pony that was an amazing song actually that yeah. was one that i went back and listened to so then in the 90s your your does your career take a little bit of a change from doing the producing to other production works with dreamworks yeah 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 i started doing multimedia stuff i i had i had worked with dave alvin 
uh, for the, 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 the first couple of years of the 90s. And Dave is, uh, he's still with us, an uh, uh, excellent songwriter. And he had been in a band called The Blasters, which was a very, very popular L.A. band, sort of a rockabilly blues yes. kind of band. And um, and then he went off on his own. He went to Nashville because he thought, OK, well, maybe I'll be you know, sort of a Nashville writer. That didn't work so well. He comes back to L.A. And and, and so uh, I recorded some demos with him and uh, the demos went very well. He got signed and uh, and we recorded an album and that that did very well. Um, uh, but but then through through, through that I, then I did a second album with him which which was was not as much fun and I, I sort of said you know maybe this this record production thing is not I, I need to move along to something else yes. you know, I got three kids by this time I had three children too you know so and and it would seem like you know I would have good months and then months would go by where there'd be nothing you know so so I, I needed something more steady and I wanted to get on the ground floor of something new you know which was this multimedia thing. Because, you know, the internet was just coming out. I got internet, like, what, 93, 94 is when I first started that. And, Dial and, up. We were, we were still calling it the, the uh, information superhighway at that stage. Indeed. We? Indeed it was. The Algor super uh, information superhighway. Dial well, yeah, up. I had never heard about it before, Al Gore, you know. I mean, yeah, what is that? The information superhighway, right? But then I, but then of course, you know, a few years later, yeah, yeah. Yes. So, so then I started working on that, making CD-ROMs. I mean, my, my kids started getting, you know, games and computer games on CD-ROM. And then I thought, well, I could do that a lot better. You know, the sound is terrible. Mm. And uh, so then I thought that I would get into that. And, uh, and, and getting into that, um, I started doing video. I, I, I became sort of like more of an expert of doing computer video. And uh, and did that for a long time, Excellent. Um, animation and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And then I was I was working. I turned into a workaholic. There was so much work to be done, you know, in the mid 90s through 2000 or so that um, I was working like seven days a week. That's but, right. You know, but then I bought a house and, you know, I mean, so so th things, uh, you know, I got very middle class, you know, <laughs> It's good you know, to embrace PTA, it. You know, the kids and all that stuff, you know. <laughs> but then, from then. Soccer, ballet and, you know. That's a good mix. That's that's quite nice. You can appreciate the sort of physicality of the ballet dancer, can't you? The the hours well, of work and practice that goes into ballet. That. Oh, yeah, I used, to, I used to know ballet dancers when I was doing theatre. Yeah. So yes. I, I got way into that. And in fact, my, my wife is, is, is hugely into that. We, we go maybe once a year to see ballet. It's beautiful. Yeah. Always we, agreed. We used to always go and see the Northern Ballet at the Theatre Royal Norwich, which was always nice. So, um, yes, it's, it's an incredible art form. But then the last 10 years, have you sort of got back into playing music from your your sort of... Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I So I stopped playing for like probably 10 years or something. You know, I mean, I would play occasionally here and there. But um, but but uh, you know, I was busy doing other things. And then my son started playing like 10 years ago. And so I started, you know, showing him, you know, him and his friend would, would come over and, and, you know, I'd show them a Ramon song. And, you know, and then we'd go out in the garage where I had an amp and, and drums and we'd start, you know, until the until the neighbors would, would shut us down, we'd, we'd, uh, we'd play there. So that was a lot of fun. And then I started playing with some guys that I had played with in high school. And, uh, you know, decided, hey, can we still do this? And we and we did like a um, like we started as a cover band doing mostly British um, uh, uh, invasion stuff. 
Excellent. So doing yard birds and doing kinks and doing, uh, you know, the animals and doing all that sort of stuff. And, uh, and we discovered that we could still play and we could still sing for hours and hours. And, you know, so, so we started doing that. Was this, the, I, was this the Furies or the X-Teens? The, the Furies, the Furies were a little bit later on. This, this was, uh, this was a band, uh, you know, Lance Loud's brother, Grant, who I had played with in high school. Excellent. And and also the bass player who um, who lived in Los Angeles at the time too, who was a um, who was writing music for commercials. You know, so so we 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 would get together once a week and and uh, and play, and then we started playing bars around town, and you know we would start getting big crowds, and they they would actually pay us. It was amazing. And uh, was this called the X Teens? This band. The X Teens, yes. Right, and are you still going? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The X-Teens will be doing some recording probably before the end of the year. The X-Teens are Simon Glickman, who is the publisher of Hits Magazine. Excellent. And uh, or the, he's the managing director. Or, you know, I, he, he runs the place pretty much. He's, he's, he's been a journalist for a long time, a uh, writer. And um, he writes these amazing songs. I mean, lyrically, they're, they're particularly amazing. And uh, we've got some good people in the band. Um, Jim Kushnery. Uh, the bass player was was like the 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 runner up for Paul McCartney's band, um, his current band, because he because he played with Rusty and in, in McCartney's band. So, right. And then and then Joey Ponchetti is one of the best drummers I've ever played with. So I, I've got this wonderful band I play with now. And uh, so uh, is yeah. is Lance's brother still in that band or was? No no no. This is not Lance's brother. Um, oh. This is uh, yeah yeah. That's that that was that was uh, like ten or fifteen years ago. I was playing with. Uh, with with Grant Loud, right? He's still with us too. I, I saw him recently. I saw I saw him and his brother recently. That's brilliant. That is so it's, good. Well, they're well, all still. Yeah, the X teams are wonderful, and I also play. You know, you you mentioned the wedding present. I I, I play with Terry uh, DeCastro from uh, the wedding present. So we we'll probably do some recording too. We've been we've been playing together. We did a gig uh, a couple of months ago, and mostly acoustic. Uh, and so that's a lot of fun too. She's a really, really good singer. I really like Terry. She's yeah, she's turned into a really good friend of mine too. Brilliant. And what's this band called? Oh, uh, we don't really have a name. Which is just Terry and Chris right now. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. I'm so. I'm just. But, but so... She's, yeah, she she's got some songs. I've got like three songs. Um, so we, we'll we'll probably record those things. Uh, she's she's actually in the UK right now. Uh, you know, doing some sort of a wedding present thing. Oh, is she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. David still, exactly. yeah, still she's, gone for, she's gone for like a month. Right. Playing and away then, there. Yeah. Right. Which earlier in the, in, in the summer, too, she did an event. They they do uh, they did something in Bristol, I believe. Yeah, or Brighton. Did they do some? Festival? Yeah, Brighton, that's what it is. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. That's the one. So then 2019, Craft in America, you become yes. the media manager. What is this? This is a... Um, a, a series that has been on for the past 15 years, actually, on PBS. And it's like a documentary series. They follow various craftspeople, people you know, like potters or leather people or, or people who forge in metals and, and right. quilters and, and people who make instruments. And, and, and so they usually there's usually three or four artists slash craftsmen that they 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 do a portrait of uh in each episode and i've been working for them for a couple three years now um you know just do, doing I, this is kind of a part-time gig for me now which which is sort of nice that's, uh, that's, you know, that's very nice helping, you know 
just helping around doing bits and pieces, editing things for for the um, for the internet, for social media and stuff like that. Fantastic. Does I recorded voiceovers here in my little studio, you know, for uh, for one of their pieces uh, last week, you know, so a, a lot of stuff. Yeah, you know, brilliant. It's, it's, has there been an interest and and because in the UK there has been a big rise in people wanting to discover crafts again? Has that yeah. been mirrored in the in America as well that there's suddenly everybody's quilting, they're knitting, they're, they're potters all over the yeah, shop? Yeah, yeah, and I I think maybe especially during the you know the lockdown, the pandemic, you know, a lot of people became a lot more sort of home centered and got into you know, learning that stuff. Well, you know, hey, I used to do this or, you know, I took ceramics in college and, you know, you know, getting back into those things or discovering that stuff. Yeah, it's great. I mean, people that blow glass, I had no idea what that was all about. And that's amazing. That that is incredibly amazing. I know. Seems so dangerous too. I mean, all this really hot, you know, incredibly kilns and and blowing the stuff and yeah, it's it's amazing. So to be able to access this series, is it available... On the internet. It's online, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Look at Craft Craft in America, PBS. Yeah, you, you should be able to Oh, find I'll have it. to there's, look at that. I'll be fascinated. All sorts of stuff. Oh, yeah. All the episodes are up there and it's all cut up and, you know, you can watch just this guy and this guy. Yeah, yeah. That's, that, that's what I do. I just sort of cut up a lot of their stuff. You put that and then, and then sort of play in several bands. I can see that you've really, because um, actually the one thing I've noticed with all these 80s indie bands that's a bit of an exaggeration, not all of them, but most of them have either tinkered away at the background or just put their guitar in the cupboard. And in the last three, five years have all sort of been creeping back and picking picking up the instrument gain, either getting back together with a few of their mates, yes. sometimes with the original members, but sometimes not. But everybody wants to do it again. It's really funny. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's discovering you can do it, you know, and it's and it's it's maybe easier to do now, you know, because I, I think the, 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 the thing about playing now at my age, you know, when in the 80s, the 70s and 80s, you know, it was all about getting a record deal, you know, yes. and all about, you know, getting to the next thing now. It's just more about making music that we like, you know, it's, you know, and getting, you know, doing it on a much smaller scale and and not, it, it didn't have to be, I don't have to get that huge record deal anymore. I don't have to play those huge gigs, you know, it's, it's like, let's, you know, scale it down to, to what you do. I mean, because there are so many great bands out there right now. I mean, you know, I'm all over Bandcamp. I'm always downloading things from Bandcamp and, and, you know, it's, 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 I'm I'm very impressed with you know where music is going. I mean, you know. Yeah. Well, there's there's quite a few people I've interviewed recently who, during the lockdown, especially thought, actually, I'm going to get my archive sorted out. Oh, by the way, I better get in touch with a few of the members, and then it's like, yeah, well, yeah, you know, yeah. there's often yeah. one of the members who's it's, quite. It's, a good... it's not going to happen with 2020. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm not hinting at that. Yeah, that sounded, okay. They, they okay. Yeah, like, to, you know, if, if you were leading there, I'd think, no. No, no there are, are. I know there's some, there's a lot of um, bands you just think, no, there's there's too much. But mostly yeah. the bands just do that drift away because it's like, you know, we've got. Yeah. But the Furies were one of those bands. I, I played with the band, the, the Furies. They, they had been around in the late 70s, early 80s. In fact, they played Madame Wong's when I saw, um, you know, when 2020 were playing there. Right. So, um, so, yeah, so I got a call from from them a few years ago and I played with them for a few years because they're still doing gigs and they're still putting out records. Yes. Well, I did an interview with a, a band 
tiny little indie band called the Jack Rubies. They did a few albums. They all drifted away. Great name. <laughs> Went all over the kind of, you know, couple in America, a few in the UK still. And then they're thinking, let's get our archives done. Oh, by the way, you know, one of the members is quite a good engineer. Shall we sort of have a go at sort of pinging a few, you know, ideas, you know, yeah, around yeah, while yeah. we're in lockdown and suddenly we've got a single. We put it on Bandcamp. Now yes. people are quite interested, oh, you know. And that's, it's that's like, great. That's That's brilliant. I mean, um, yeah, I, I love the way that that is happening now, and yeah. and bands and bands coming back and touring. Like uh, a, a friend of mine just got off the road with um, uh, "Stop the World and Melt with You," um, um, but Modern English. Oh yes, they're touring now, and I think that they are so great. You know, they had one song that was huge. You know, forty years ago. And they can still tour, you know, if they if they arrange it correctly, you know, if they if their expectations are are realistic, they can tour and actually make a few bucks. And, you know, and it's, and it's a wonderful thing. It is amazing. Yes. And, and I, 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 just, really, I really appreciate that. You know, that, I think but that, that's that's being like intelligent, though. That's being smart. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. 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 I think always, hopefully get a big gig. And did you ever play Las Vegas, by the way? <laughs> I played and the only time I played Las Vegas was in, in the movie um um Honeymoon in Vegas where I I did I did the Elvis music I, I produced the Elvis music for that I don't know if you've seen this movie it's I have Vegas seen this movie. movie yeah 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 well it's the, the the gag in the movie is that there are all these Elvis impersonators you know and and we recorded all this wonderful um um Elvis music for that you know for Excellent. a couple of times which was great and uh, but anyway, when it came to Ken Tom to shoot the movie, they got the band who was in uh, who, who actually recorded all the stuff to come to uh, to Las Vegas and to wear those, you know, pink dinner jackets. And uh, and I was the trumpet player. Actually, I don't play trumpet, but there was a trumpet player on the record. So I, I you know, I, I got a couple of days work out of that. So that was nice. Brilliant. And also just and just lastly, if you if you could have whispered something to your 16 year old self starting out yeah. and you think, you know, with all these decades of experience and and with word you know some lessons learned and wisdom is there anything that you would have wanted to just to whisper to that person and just even if they ignored it you would have thought look I'm still just going to say it anyway I just wondered what that would be you know it's 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 sort of like uh you know calm down you know calm down look look at all the opportunities don't miss an opportunity you know Look at them all and um, and try to make the best decision you can, you know, because yes. it seems like when, you, when you're young, there's just so many things out there. You know, there's just so many opportunities, you know, and there's no way of knowing what it's going to be like 50 years later. You know, that's right. And you it's know? interesting because you because uh, you're almost quite unusual in the sense that you just had that so many opportunities in the 70s. It was like every year there was yeah. another thing rather than get together. Yeah. There's a group of us. We do the band five years. We all fall out. Then that's the end of that. Whereas you're sort of yeah. working with so many different people. I guess that helped yeah. you in your 90s and into the O years with your production and media work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's. I think it's a good perspective. I mean, um, like, you know, for instance, my, my, my sister lives in the UK and she's a singer. She's a really, really good singer. And her husband is Clive Deemer, who is the second drummer with Radiohead. Oh, yes. And, yeah. And, and he and he toured for years with um, with Robert Plant 
And, um, you know, so he's he's been a professional drummer, you know, for the past 30 years or so, 40 years, however long he's been doing it. And and he's got a little jazz group that plays the continent, you know, um, like pretty regularly. Yeah. And and and, you know, it's it's like how you arrange, you know, your life, because this is what you want to do. And, and, you know, do you, do you, do you teach, you know, do you, do you, do you get a studio in your house so you can provide drums for, you know, because a lot of, you know, the recording thing now is that you, you send your, your, your files to different people to, you know, I need pedal steel. Can you put this on or, or drums or, or whatever, you know, so you, you send your files around to have yes. people play on. I mean, I do that. I do that too. And and it's that that's something you would not have thought about doing, you know, twenty or thirty years ago, but now that's really commonplace, you know. And, and it's that's what's great about it too, because it's it's like you know, how do I use this this talent I have and this and this impulse I have to 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 make music and be creative, you know? It is amazing because I've done a few, quite a few interviews with people in LA, and they all seem to have got a studio in their garage converted. And yeah. I remember one guy who was, I think he was in Jellyfish. He said, oh, yes, I'm doing some, I think it was the bass for Sinead O'Connor and he'd done something with Noel Gallagher. And it's like, oh, right. So, you know, it's kind of interesting. Like, you know, his, his other bits and pieces in his life is kind of providing these kind of like, yes, musical accompaniment for um, artists around the world. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, a it's, good one. it's it's so it's, it's really great. I mean, I, I have, you know, great optimism for, you know, the, 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 the recording wise, it's wonderful that way. The, the, the problem is there's there's not as many places for kids to play for young musicians to play. I mean, and that is something that used to be, you know, you would play every night, you know, and now is, is that even possible, you know, without actually going on the road and, and you know, having having a following and you know, because that's that could be really expensive to do that now. But I mean, it, it used to be where you would do residencies yes. at like a hotel where you would play there for a week, you know, and then move along to the next city. I mean, there it's that that was a great thing. I mean, and, and if you look, if you look at, you know, bands from like the, the 60s, I mean, the Beatles and stuff, if you look at their itinerary, they're playing three gigs in a, in a, a day. You know, they're playing an afternoon show. They're playing an early evening. They're playing a late night show over here. Yes. I mean, there's so many opportunities and that's when you really get good. I mean, that's a different kind of muscle, you know, that, that you get for, for playing as a musician is playing in front of people, you know, it, it's, it, that's really important too. And that is something that's lacking. Yeah. I think that apprenticeship work, cause I know I did an interview with JJ French, who was in Twisted Sister, a band I didn't like, but their story is amazing. They had 10 years just playing live without getting a record deal. There's a great right. film. If you ever get to see the film, you know, it stops when they get a record label uh, deal in the 80s. But they spend the late 60s and 70s just gigging every night at all these bars around New York. And it's like, yeah, oh, yeah. we did that for 10 yeah. years. Yeah. And it yeah. was like, yeah, we did that, you know, two gigs two different a hairstyles. Yeah, that must be fun to watch. <laughs> <laughs> yes, bizarre band. But they kept going for 10 years and then they get the break, you know. And bizarrely, the break comes because every record label said, we're not going to sign you whatever and you know people you know the president of the record label if you sign that band you're going to get sacked 
And then they they're on the they get this gig. They're like, we're just going to give up now. They had so many disasters. Like we get signed, and then the person who signed them drops dead of a heart attack, or the <laughs> or the record or the record label has got some great fraud, and that's they've lost everything. And then they get this gig to play in the Tube in the UK in Newcastle. They've got no money, so they have to hustle some money from some slightly dodgy guy. They get this gig. Someone sees it and says, "God, I love that band. I'll sign it." And um, and the rest, and then the film, and the film finishes there as they become this massive band in the yeah. End. The record comes out and it's huge. Yeah, it's yeah. huge. It's a bizarre world, but um, it's, it's it's interesting. I mean, how many bands had to go to England, you know, to get recognized? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was like, like well, Devo. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there were there were just so many of them. Uh, even um, even Tom Petty. I mean, yes. he went to England. That's where he. Well, I think it's just on that point. I think for us, England is so, Britain is so tiny, isn't it? That you can quickly become like, wow. You yeah, know? And there's yeah, also yeah. something about, God, they're from New York. We must love them. You know, I did like Sonic Youth, but it did help that they came from New York as well. And, <laughs> you know, yeah, had they come from Cleveland, it was like, yeah. But the know. other thing, too, I noticed, too, when I was working in England in the 80s, is that they would sign bands to do a single. You know, the, whereas in L.A., you know, in the in the in the U.S., you they would have to sign bands to do an album, a three album deal. And and so that the, the record company's investment was like a, a half a million, a million bucks, whereas mm. in England, their investment was maybe 20 or 30 thousand pounds, you know, because, OK, if that single does well, maybe you can do another. If it does really well, maybe you'll do an album. And and that seemed like like a really civilized way of doing it. And that that seemed why there were so many great bands coming out of England, too, yes. because, you know, the 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 investment investment wasn't so huge amazing isn't it i know it's an incredible world isn't it but um yes get a if you get a chance go and see the wedding present film george best it'll love yes it. yes yes george and, best yes so george best oh um i can send you the, i'll send you the trailer for that as well but when you see it you know it's a lovely bit with the producer and the drummer and um various <laughs> mums it's it's <laughs> your heart will bleed for them but never mind yeah but look, Chris, thank you ever so much for this. This has been amazing. And if you want, I can always give you the link for the interview um, when it comes out, and then you can always sure, use it sure. elsewhere. But sure. uh, but thanks for that. This has been amazing. And, um, it was fun. Appreciate all of it. That's great. Well, look, have a great afternoon. I'm going to go to bed. Take care. <laughs> Good night. See you later. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. And that was me in conversation with um, Chris Salaghi. I hope that's how you pronounce his name. Anyway, he was in California. I was in the UK. I needed to go to bed, so um, as you gather. Anyway, look, a massive thank you to Chris for giving me the time for that. This has been the C86 Show, David Eastall. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. All these have been archived, aren't you lucky? Find those on Spotify. Yes, indeed. iTunes, Podbean. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.